Welcome to the Geek Speak Show. People who get it, get it. This is the Geek Speak Show. Interviews with the movers and shakers in geek culture. This is Mark Zickby, writer, producer, and director of Space Command. Hey, this is Todd McFarlane, creator of Spawn, and one of the original founders of Image Comics. Hi, I'm Chris Hardwick. God bless the geek. They're listening. You're consuming. You're watching it with your ears. Oh, you just listen. The Geek Speak Show is powered by GeekTyrant.com, GameTyrant.com, MightyVille.com, Ramascreen.com, and Zergnet.com. Please make a note of it. Here are the hosts of the Geek Speak Show, Henry San Miguel and Mark Flores. Yes, here we are. Welcome to the Geek Speak Show. You know, that just reminded me, BBC America just also had, we're about to talk about TV shows. They just had the uh, the season finale for the Nerdist show on BBC America, their, their first season. Got I'm always looking for an excuse to get him on. So Chris has, has to come on. We'll talk about that and some other things that are coming up. We'll talk about Course of the Force, of course, of course. Um... He hates when I do that. That's why I did that. Sorry. Uh, oh, yeah. Hi. We didn't know you there. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Geek Speak Show. Mark is here. Rachel's not here. She'll be back uh, next week. She is basking in the glory of her cheat. I mean, uh, her winning the Star Trek versus Star Wars show that we did a couple weeks ago. It's all according to you. If you guys are out there saying, oh, how can you give it to her? You gave it to her. And it wasn't me. I, I told you. We left it in your hands. You guys voted. We gave it to her. So she'll be back probably next week. Maybe. Depends on how much her celebrating goes. But, Mark, let's talk TV. Some shows are ending. Some shows are about to kick off. Uh, I, I didn't get into Arrow that much. And I hate, I've said it before on the air, I hate jumping into shows mid-season because you know it, it just doesn't make sense to me you have though you've been watching yes, arrow i have we, we were talking about it right before we started recording so go ahead and tell everybody what you were saying about the finale for arrow so yeah we were just talking about this before the show i've i've been following arrow since the beginning it was kind of funny uh my girlfriend and i went down to uh WonderCon, i believe it was and i saw Stephen amell who plays oliver queen the titular character of of arrow or the hood as they call him in the show and i was like eh, i didn't really want to check out the show at that time so i just really didn't even think twice about giving it a chance but after after WonderCon, we ended up you know deciding you know what let's check it out and i got addicted because it's a really really good show so um the first and only season they've had thus far they've renewed it for a second but they just had their season's finale i want to say two weeks ago on wednesday or something like that um and i gotta say i was somewhat disappointed um they were saying that in their season finale, they had chopped out a big chunk or a big cliffhanger, if you will, um, and they're going to leave that to the second season. Now, we don't quite know exactly what that is. Um, there were rumors that they were going to be paying uh, homage to Hal Jordan a little bit and, and nodding to um, – God, what's the what's the girl's name? The, the aerospace industry. The, Ferris? I forget. Yes, yes, yes. Ferris Airliners. Yeah, yeah. They were – they were trying to, you know, hint at that to say that Green Lantern and Green Arrow were sort of in the same universe somehow. So I don't know. There are rumors that uh, the, the one of the writers for the show who um, I want to say he produced something with the Green Lantern movie with Hal Jordan that uh, they wanted to talk to Ryan Reynolds about maybe bringing him into the show. But we don't know how accurate that is. But um, Roy Harper, the character who plays Speedy, who later becomes Red Arrow, um, he is in the show. Um, some Abercrombie and Fitch model kid plays him. And they're saying, well, this kid, he wants to – Roy Harper, he wants to become uh, a sidekick vigilante or whatever. So they were saying maybe he'll you know, don a red hood of sorts um, in the season finale. But none of that. Um, if you guys haven't seen it, haven't seen the finale, I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler here. Um, 
Tommy, the his um Oliver Queen's best friend in the show, estranged best friend, and son of the primary villain, uh, Tommy Merlin. He dies uh, during a, an earthquake, uh, a man-made earthquake by the, se- the series' primary villain, and, and he gets killed. But, you know, when he gets killed, you're not left with a feeling of, oh, my God, Tommy Merlin. Like, I feel so bad that you're gone. Like, no, none of that. Wasn't really all that impressed with the, with the emotions on screen. But, um, yeah, that happened, and, you know, they, they've already signed on for a second season, so we know that we're getting that, but there wasn't anything that you're like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen next? Where are we? So somewhat of a disappointment for an overall good show on the CW, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens on uh, in season two, see what they do with it. You know, that, that ending kind of sounds like the one I want to talk about, and then I, I guess I got to take it on because Rachel's not here. It's her show. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about now. Revolution, that ended uh, this past Monday. I got to say it was kind of flat really i mean it, it the past two weeks the show re- the action especially really picked up and you know there there were some deaths some major character deaths um and, and kind of like what you I don't, I don't know if it's the writing or the acting or combination of both when when those deaths happened you were kind of okay and you didn't really you know it didn't hit you emotionally the way it was supposed to you didn't you didn't have the tissue box like when we had some deaths and and, and loss when that was on yeah um, yeah but but the, the the ending as a whole for for revolution, uh, I don't know if it's the writers being safe because they, they kind of like you know Fringe was all seasons I will say they don't know if it's coming back next season or not they don't know if it's going to be canceled you know while while they're on hiatus. Um, there's nothing really you know that 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 makes you go hmm wonder, like you said with Arrow hmm what's going to happen for for I can't wait till season two starts and and this this or this happens potentially. There's none of that. It was just, um, you know, it ends and you realize that the the president of the United States has been alive this whole time. And then one of his somebody said, said, OK, Mr. President, time to take over. And it ends I'm like, eh, what? OK. But, you know, me, I got to watch it again. It's still in my DVR. I got to watch it again. It's not so late. Maybe I was just tired. But it it looks like it, it, it to me, it looked like a game changer where the title actually actually meant literally revolution. That it's going to be a revolution against whatever, and we're going to rise up again. It's starting to be pretty. It's starting to be a lot like Patriot Games now. There's a lot of a uh, lot of uh, well, actually more more like well, born Patriot Games. Uh, a lot of political stuff in there now, and and I don't know if that's where they want whether they wanted it to go or but or maybe like i said it, it comes on so late me i'm just tired and that's the way i see it i gotta watch it you know like now middle of the day when i can I, when my brain is actually functioning and then maybe i'll get what they're trying to go for but that was the end of revolution graham and nbc's graham ended a, a couple of weeks now i think forgot to talk about that that one did it on a huge cliffhanger nick is maybe is gonna be maybe you'll the reason for you get for you to watch it now mark Maybe he's gonna wake up as a zombie now, because the last two leading up to the to the finale were kind of a World War Z episode or storyline, where you realize who is the, one of the grim fairy tale characters who creates zombies. Yeah, that, that's what the, the two were about. And the cliffhanger is, you know, he the thing is he he becomes like a blowfish. He spits his green gel, whatever that is, on you, and that's what <laughs> the, that's how you rise up as a zombie. Uh, Nick, the the grim, the main grim. He got spit on at the end, and now he might rise up again in season three as a zombie. So that's what happened there. Now, Game of Thrones, I know that it wasn't the finale, but uh, Rachel Ugh. and I 
sort of talked. Rachel's talked about it in the um, you know, the last past, past few weeks. I haven't jumped in only because it's uh, you know I've got on my provider I've got like twenty HBO channels, and I do record it. It's in on my DVR. I haven't sat down and actually gone to that. That'll probably be what I do this weekend because I got really got finally for once have nothing to do. So I'll probably catch up on Game of Thrones. This past one though. I can't help but when I'm on Twitter and you know the, uh, on the internet, you guys were talking about it. I, I had to log off because you know I don't want any spoilers. You watch it. I know Rachel watches it because she she uh, talked about it before. Uh, uh, when was it? Last week or whenever it was, or Monday. I'm gonna go ahead. You can you can just, you decide if you want to spoil it or not. But you go uh, ahead and give your thoughts on it. I don't I don't want to spoil it for listeners because for me and I I don't I'm not getting paid to say this, but. What I will say is this episode was so powerful. I imagine, okay, imagine you're watching The Lion King for the first time, and Simba is is witnessing his father's death, and Simba goes up and he, he's nudging Mufasa, and he's like, "Dad, Dad, wake up!" And you're so sad because you know that he's not going to wake up, and the pain and the emotion that you felt. Now intensify that by like a thousand, and that's how this 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 episode really you, you went there. No, it, was, it was that bad. I'm telling you, it is dreadful like you not to make a lion king reference (laughs) no i had to it's okay this the episode is not a bad episode it's a very well written well acted excellent episode but it's emotionally disturbing and painful and you know i i gotta say as as a man and as someone who's quite masculine and i don't have the ability to to cry on call i wanted to cry so bad but the only thing that held me back was not my masculinity but simply the shock and awe of what happened on screen this I think it's episode nine, I think. So season three, episode nine is going to live in infamy as being the most painful episode in any type of cinematic televised. Well, it's, it's HBO, so it's not television. It's HBO. But, you know, one of those moments. But I watch where, it on my TV. <laughs> but you watch it on your TV. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it was it just it hurt. And it's it's funny to me in the sense that George R. Martin, George R. R. Martin, he um. I would have to imagine that his mindset is that he really wants to go against the grain. Forget everything you know about conventional storytelling and, you know, this character does this and this main character does this and this character is safe and there's this can't happen. This would never happen. He throws all that to the side and just does whatever he wants and he just messes with emotions. It's it's quite amazing. I've never seen someone do this before and, and George R. R. Martin did the books. It's a series of what will be seven books. He's done five books now. The last one came out in 2011 and I think – the next book is supposed to be either this year or next. I, I don't recall. It's in the works right now. And um, I want to say that we're on maybe the third book, third season, third book. Maybe I'm not sure if it follows chronologically that way exactly. But um, I'm trying to read the books to get caught up. But I wasn't – I didn't get to this point. So it was a complete shock moment for me what happens in this episode, the Red Wedding as it's called. That's about as far as I'm going to say Red Wedding. That's all you need to know. Um, but it's – what I've liked about it, and Henry, you brought up that it's all over Twitter, all over Facebook. What I really liked is that when I was on Twitter, and I don't do Facebook that much, Twitter's the only one that I really do, I noticed that everyone is just saying like, oh my God, why? They weren't spoiling it for anyone, at least from what I was seeing. People weren't going out there and spoiling it, so that was that was kind of nice. But all the same, keep in mind that if you have not seen the episode like Henry, who we're going to force to get caught up, it, you, you, you don't want to go to any social media to ruin it for you because it is it is just... It's an oh my god moment. Oh my god. That's all I can say. So kind of like the book that I'm going to talk about uh, later on in the, in the book club. It, it's a book that it, 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 I, I, it just came out last month. I got a review copy. I got to read it. 
I have to read it a couple of times. It is a twist and really, really good. You don't see it coming kind of like that. The emotional thing you're talking about, again, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm imagining it. I'm imagining like earlier this year, or I think it was last year, I forget now when it was, but uh, episode number, I believe it was three or four of AMC's The Walking Dead, um, yeah. where Carl Carl's mom died. And there were a lot of deaths and, and, and big deaths in that one. And that one was one of the most powerful episodes of, of, of The Walking Dead ever. Is it kind of like like that? It's it's worse than that. It is so much worse than that. Because like they're like I read the comics, so I kind of expected as much to happen. So maybe I was just kind of prepped for it. And in the show, like it's it's very emotional and you know that they kill off main characters all the time and you know you're you're accustomed to that. But when Lori dies, you're like, Oh man, what a bummer. Like, how's Rick gonna handle this now? What's you know, what's Carl gonna do without any guidance from, you know, from her? Like what's gonna happen? But in in the Game of Thrones, it's it's so much more intense that there's no way to really prep you for it. Like I heard, um, I want to say one of the, one of the producers of the show, the game of Thrones said that when he was reading the books, when he got to this scene of the red wedding, that's the reason why they wanted to make it a TV show because it was such a holy crap moment that you were just, it had to be created for people to see like the masses. Cause I mean, believe it or not, there's probably, you know, so many more people that would rely on game of Thrones as far as a TV show and would never watch or read the books rather, you know, but but I heard that was that was the catalyst that was to create the show was based off of that, you know, chapter in in the books. So, I mean, that's that tells you if a whole series can be spawned off of that one thing, like, you know, that one thing is huge. And it is apparently from what you guys are oh, saying. Oh, God, it's it's so huge. Oh, so now I'm going to catch up this weekend. See, now there's my plans for the weekend. Catch up on Game of Thrones. So those are the shows that are um, coming to the for finales. Returning this weekend on TNT is Falling Skies again. It's, it's been gone for a bit now. Season 3 kicks off this Sunday. Uh, starts, I think it's 9 or 8 o'clock. It's a two-hour premiere. Uh, last, uh, when was it? March This or April. It feels like years ago. But at WonderCon in Anaheim this past, uh, whenever it was, three, four weeks, four months ago, um, I had a chance to sit on the round table. You guys heard it after we came back with some of the stars from Falling Skies. Drew Roy, who plays Hal Mason, Who's going to be um, a little different? I'll say, I'll just put it that way th- this time around. We got to hear from him, so I'm going to replay it for you to get you ready for Falling Skies Return on TNT this Sunday. Here we go. Drew Roy plays Hal Mason. Here he is from WonderCon 2013. So, Hal is not the Hal that we all know now. Well, at the end of season two. Do we know that though? We don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I think. Um, is Hal going to be causing a lot of trouble? Well, uh, we left off with Hal in quite an interesting situation where we're not really sure what's going on. Um, when we actually wrote that scene, when they wrote the scene, they weren't even certain where it was going to go. So um, they wanted to have a great cliffhanger, which I think they accomplished, and then uh, they wanted to allow the time to really come up with a good story as to what it actually means is, is what's going on. Because what's different about Hal uh, with the, the eye bug is that it then goes in his ear and then guess we assume into his brain but we've never seen this happen before so um, when uh, when Tom was taken over by the eye bug there was some sort of a, a tracking aspect but it was from red eye so that was from someone who is good now this is from who is it from we're not quite sure but we might have a good idea where it's from I did come close I think it'd been okay but anyway uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna have to do a lot of that dodging um, so it 
looks like it's coming from a bad source this time. Therefore, is going to sort of bring up this mischievous side, this potential evil side. But um, the way the writers went about it is it's very much a push and pull. Um, we're going to see aspects of the old Hal that we've all come to know. And then there's going to be this, these demons that he's dealing with. And um, we'll have to see how that plays into his life and how that affects people around him. One of the things that was good about last season is that, compared to the first season, the first season felt very contained in one location. Second season was a lot more exploration of the world. Uh, how will that maybe continue with the third season in terms of exploring more of the world, or are you primarily in one place for a lot of the season? I completely agree with you. I felt like the first season, uh, you know, we were setting up the, the story, and, and so I guess keeping it contained like that was a good thing, but I definitely enjoyed when we were going out on the missions. We were on the run the whole second season, but then the second season came to an end with us being in Charleston, which looks like an easy place to, to just set up camp and, and get comfortable. But I think we all learned on the show that when we're on the run, it's a little more exciting. So uh, this season, uh, we, uh, my dad, Tom Mason, uh, is the president of Charleston. He has risen through the ranks and he is now running Charleston. It's a, it's a smaller operation. You know, it's not the president of the United States, but we're calling it the new United States. We don't know who else is out there. But at the same time, there's still a lot going on out up past the perimeter, which is going to take our characters out there time and time again. Um, it's very interesting ways. So yeah, you're gonna, we're definitely going to see us out dirty and gritty and not just comfortable at home. Before you guys start filming the seasons, do they sit you down and tell you where character arc is going to go, or do you guys get surprised like we do? Somewhat. Um, I found out uh, some, some of the details of what this, uh, what what's going on with Hal was going to be uh, at Comic Con last year. So that was, um, I guess, a month and a half before we started shooting, and then we go into the writers' room and they sort of give us a, a breakdown of, of what they're thinking. If we have any ideas, and we kind of throw some ideas around. But then at the same time, as the scripts are coming out, they're always evolving and changing. So um, sometimes we'll have a storyline that looks like it's going over here, but when we finally shoot it, it's actually completely different than what we thought. So we have an idea, but uh, it's always up for change. Well, I was rooting, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jessie's, and I was rooting for her on Last Resort, but now I'm hoping to see more of her on TNT. Well, you know, I think you might be in for a treat. Okay. You can't get rid of her. Yeah. <laughs> she causes too much trouble. Well, I mean, TNT, we know drama. She makes the drama. Yeah. <laughs> and, she, and I mean, I, I, I don't. How, how long did she spend in prosthetics for her? You know, right now in, in, in season two, how long did she spend in, in prosthetic makeup to get that look? Um. Well, I guess most of her prosthetic work is just with the harness. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure. I think when when both when she and Connor have to go through the the, the, the spikes. Um, yeah. It takes them a little longer, and then particularly when the spikes have to light up. Yeah. Because just a, a normal spike is one thing, but to have the lighting spikes is a whole different ball game. Apparently, uh, I don't know much about the spikes. <laughs> but um, now Doug Jones, who was playing the new alien that we saw at the very end of the second right. season, now that's a guy that's going through prosthetics. He has to get there. I want to say it's three hours beforehand, maybe four, and that was a suit that he could speak better about this, but from what I heard talking to him, he um, he got to help him design the suit, so it was more comfortable, uh, easier to get in and out of, and uh, when, 
when he's on set, that's something pretty impressive. I mean, it looks like an alien's walking around. The eyes are just fantastic. They actually used to have um, his face, <laughs> it was ridiculous looking, it was. He had this big giant head, and his whole face was cut out. So, yeah. you could see expressions, they could work off of that. But it looked ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, then, for some reason, they decided that it would actually be easier in post to put the, the face on it. And so then they changed it about halfway through and actually made a mold of the face and then they will enhance that in post-production. And um, that was the evolution of Cochise is his name. I think it's Chichak Il Sichnikoy is his real name. I could be completely wrong, but it's somewhere in that vein. Well, Doug always does a great job. Oh, it's fantastic, right? Yeah. Could have put him in anything and he looks good. <laughs> you just cover him up and yeah, he looks real good. So, I mean, in a show like this where there's a lot of twists and turns and things like that, do you prefer only knowing what your character is doing and being surprised by the rest of the storyline or do you kind of want everything? I only like to know what my character's doing if it's something that I'm privy to. Like with this thing that Hal's going through, I wanted to know what was affecting him, why he was having these things happen so that I can play that and there's like a, a linear bridge together through one to the other. Um, now if it's something that uh, a carpet's going to be pulled out from under Hal like in the second episode of the first season when Jesse goes missing, I don't need to know that because when it comes, it comes. It's, it's going to blindside me. Um, so as long as it's not something that I'm, I'm playing, actively playing, I'd rather just, I'd rather, I'd, the only time I get to be an audience member is when I read that script. So, Connor Jessup loves to give spoilers because he likes to find out what's going on and he prides himself on knowing I never want to hear. That's Drew Roy plays Hal Mason. Again, he didn't give it away, but uh, again, like I said, he'll he's just going to be a little bit different than what we're used to. Seychelle Gabriel plays Lourdes. She, she's also going to be a little bit different now that Anne, uh, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't caught up, but then again, they had a whole marathon last weekend, so you had a chance to catch up. Uh, the Anne character is her mentor. Um, she was pregnant. She's going to have the baby right in the first episode because they don't, they don't want to have her pregnant the whole season, which is a good thing. So Seychelle Gabriel's character, Lourdes, she takes on the, the head, you know, caretaker role now so here's what she had to say about what's coming up for her character arc in this season because last year um i i felt so bad for your character last year because of her relationship and what happened to her boyfriend and she had a big attitude change so i'm wondering how has all of that stuff affected her like how has she changed from season two to season three um she's grown up a lot um i mean she did from season one to season two but even in a more uh more so you know from it's almost like season two is like her kind of college phase, I feel, and like season three, she's like a full-blown like adult. Um, she's become a doctor in Charleston. It's seven months after, and some of that darkness I think that she took from Jamil has been channeled into um, just straight up productivity, um, just moving forward. Um, so, I mean, how I like to justify it is that. Know, if I couldn't do anything to help Jamil line on the floor, and I basically watched him die, then yeah, why not help as many other people as you can? And so I think that's kind of what was going on in her head, at least for me. And um, yeah. So. Well, how does Annie's pregnancy affect you know your relationship with her? You know, you used to be like you know doctor men, or you know the, you know you, she was your mentor. Now you're now it sounds like you're taking more of the leadership role. Yeah, I'm um I'm I'm taking like kind of all those lessons she taught me in the past two seasons and 
she's kind of letting me go with it because she's got her baby. And I mean, you know, I'm her help. I'm still her assistant, you know, in so many realms of life, you know, even as a friend um, with the baby and stuff. And actually, in terms of that, like, darkness coming from season two, the baby is such a like beam of light in the first episode and I think Lourdes even has like a bit that she says to Anne like I'm almost envious of your child because everything is new and beautiful to them and so it's kind of cool it's for everybody um, but it is stressful because there's so much going on so for all the characters but yeah so I take it no new love interest will be coming your way not anytime soon but you never know you never know at the end <laughs> Do you sit in with the writers and say, hey, look, you give her sad backstory, then she was happy, then you take it away? Is she going to have a happy end somewhere in there? <laughs> um, you know, I've never, I've never, like, kind of, you know, I have every right to say that, though. Man, you orphaned <laughs> me. I have no boyfriend. Hal has, like, a bunch of girls that I have to watch him flirt with in front of me. Um, no, but I, I did sit in with the writers, actually, kind of the first time this season, and it's fun, we talked about some cool things, and after, I don't know, after being on a show for so, so long, it's easier to be comfortable, it's cool, I kind of mentioned, like, wanting to interact with different characters, and what's cool about being in the hospital is all these, all of the characters and the entire cast comes through the hospital, because everyone gets screwed up at some point, so I do get scenes with, like, all these great people that, in the past, you know, I've just been with Moon most of the time, which is awesome, because like one of my best friends <laughs> but uh, yeah it's a fun season did Moon give you any advice on you know, how to because she's done a lot of genre stuff before did she tell you okay this is what to expect yeah Moon's definitely like pumped me up and made me a lot stronger and more confident about things because she's just like that kind of woman and um, she's played a lot of I think very strong roles and uh, I don't know it's almost like it's almost like a similar parallel with Anne and Lourdes, because I feel like Lourdes like, was so innocent to me in the beginning, and now she's like kind of owns herself, and it's really cool. Um, and I don't know, I feel like Anne's kind of led her into that place. And Moon's kind of done that for me, too. She's like, don't take anybody's shit, <laughs> basically. She's not that type of person. So. Do you think that Lourdes is, um, will she ever, I really want to see her like have a gun and start going to a room clearing it out and letting people have it because she seems like such a sweet girl. Yeah. But she's in a terrible world. Yeah. Terrible things have happened. Yeah. So this is season three. You were talking about how she's grown up. Will she ever at some point have to like get down and dirty like that like how her others do? She will this season. She will this I season. promise you. Yeah. And um but and that's one of the things I actually spoke with the writers too. I was like, man, that one scene, that episode actually with Jamil and the Crawleys and when Moon and me and Max were like in that hall with the guns and she had the blowtorch and stuff and there were things going off, that was like the funnest day ever. And I was like, man, I, I do this all the time. But, um, but it's cool because I really treasure it when it comes around. Um, but yeah, no, this season, definitely. And I think that she's in such a screwed up place in the head, you know, even if she doesn't want to kind of touch on that herself, you know, when you don't want to address that and be forward with yourself, um, it comes out in twisted ways and, you know, and so many things happen spontaneously. So. But yeah, you will see Lourdes get a little down and dirty and, in unexpected ways and, um, yeah, you know, the violence 
can't really stay awake for long, even if you are in this underground safe haven. It's just always coming. <laughs> but, but she always will live up to her first name, the, uh, the legacy of her first name, right? I believe so. Yeah, I, mean, I think so. I think Lourdes is just innately just a good person at heart and a good girl who, you know, bad things have happened to her, but she's just very true. And she doesn't kind of like mess in anybody's business she's not supposed to, really, right. you know, and she's just doing the best she can. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think that's kind of almost the definition of someone who's like a lord, someone to look up to and almost a human like you, but in an exemplary way that, I don't know. People go, you know, and she's like literally a place of healing, you know. Yeah, yeah, which is cool. What was the, do you know the story of the Lady of Lourdes? I, I, I kind of think it was like there's something about people would go there, you know, people, desperate people, you know, injured people would always right. go and, and, and the Lady of Lourdes would help would help, right. her, help them. Yeah, and it's funny because doctors, and you realize this on the show too, are just almost like therapists and, you know, I'm speaking through all this medical jargon, which is a new thing this season that I got, <laughs> but you're speaking through all this, but basically you're just telling them like, they're going to be okay, or they're not going to be okay, or like, basically, you're going to be okay because your friend's going to be okay, you know, it's just right. like, you see it in their eyes, you know, like, you're my information duck, you're what's going to help me sleep at night, and, um, and it's, uh, I read a book on nursing, um, and that's usually the nurse's role, but in this kind of world, doctor and nurse are one and the same, I mean, just helper, anything, and so it's like, it's just like a big mashup of help and stress, and yeah, but, last question. <laughs> so do you like knowing what's coming up, or do you like, or do you just want to know what your character is doing at any point in time, do you, like, do you like to know the spoilers? I like to know, and I'm, you know what, like, part of me says I don't, but like, I'd love to know. Like I, and like and people just like whisper things on set, and you're like, what is it? <laughs> They're like, I'm not supposed to tell you. Like, yeah, but I'm, uh, I'm right here. But no, I like to know. It's helpful for the character. I think. Um, and even if you do know a little bit, the writers never, at least on our show, tell you exactly how it's going to pan out. I mean, maybe because there's so much stuff going on that they haven't gotten to that, or or because they want it to be that much of a surprise to you as it is to the audience. And, um, but yeah, it's, there was a lot of surprises this year. That's why I love being on the show. It's like, everything is suspenseful and crazy. <laughs> and last but not least, now we hear from the showrunner and executive producer, Rami Abushan. He's going to give, um, not, not spoilers, just uh, again, get us ready for the premiere, and that's this Sunday on TNT. Here he is. So I have a really big question for you. Okay. Um, do, can you tell us, will the show or season three premiere start off exactly where season two finale ended, or will there be a time jump? There's going to be a time jump. How much of a time jump? Seven months. Oh, that's specific. Yeah. <laughs> why? Well, specific because I wrote it, so I so that's why I know it. But uh, so why seven months? Well, I mean, uh, and seven months is only semi-arbitrary, and there'll be explanations as to why that is, but but uh, part of the practical reason is that if you remember, Anne is pregnant, and I, I think we, we talked about it a lot, but we, at the end, decided that we really didn't want to do a full season with Anne pregnant, which is what practically it would be if we just started the day after 
the aliens came in. We wanted to advance that story. And also, a lot of stuff happens in those seven months. And I, I mean, I, as a, I come a lot to writing a show as a fan. And a lot of the time, I love the idea where it's like, whoa, what happened? How did that happen? And have all that time of catching up to, to the story, which I think we do kind of in a fun way. You know, you'll suddenly, right away at the beginning, you can tell things have changed. And, and, and the question that hopefully you'll have is, why have things changed? How have things changed? These new aliens, did they change things? You know, did, um, what's the deal with uh, Hal and his eye worm? How's, how's that affecting everybody? And I think we allow the audience to catch up in a fun way, and pretty quickly too. But it, it just seemed like a great way to kind of infuse a, another burst of energy into the show rather than just start you know, meeting the aliens, figuring out who they are, stuff like that. What I liked in season two was the, you know, you start taking the whole, like, biomechanical, you know, technology and taking it, ramping it up. Right. Especially, you know, with, with Ben, you know, with, with, uh, with uh, I guess, Karen, you know, and, every, right. and then her involvement with the aliens and the eye worm. Uh, that's, that, that's awesome. I think, for, you know, first with the dad, now with his son. Right. So what, uh, what can you say anything about the hype, what you're going to be doing with that aspect in season three? Well, I think we will be increasing it more. Uh, one of the things that's fun about bringing in yet another alien entity who are clearly very different, both technologically and uh, and just physically different than the Ishpani or the overlords that we've had uh, before the Skitters, uh, we introduce their technology, which is kind of fun, and, and wonder whether or not that technology is is compatible with ours and also... Are they our allies, or are they just bringing in more craziness to to uh, to you know catch us, uh, get us end runded? Uh, we're trying to figure all of that out. But I think that in terms of like expanding the mythology of of the Ishpeni and the Overlords and what their purpose is here. Uh, we'll see a lot more of Karen this season. Uh, in many ways, she's almost the face of uh, of the enemy, uh, which I think will be which will which will help us understand them more. Well, it's like I was saying, uh, telling you know before about. I said I love Jesse. I think she's a great actress, and I was rooting for her in Last Resort. But I like seeing her back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We uh, we had a quite a balancing act with uh, I. I Jesse, by the way, one of the nicest people in the world that you'll ever want to meet, and and such a trooper, because they literally were flying her. She was on a flight from Hawaii to Vancouver, and she did that four times. Oh my you know, uh, and literally would leave the set from Last Resort, get on a plane, go do her her Karen thing, yeah. a completely different character, and then zoom right back to Hawaii and do work. She is great. So, I mean, both intense characters. I mean, how, how did she maintain her, you know, that nice demeanor? She's just, uh, she's just a solid, you know, she's a trooper. That's the best thing I can do. I mean, she has always got this great attitude. It's infectious, actually. Um, this will be the last question. Okay, okay. Sorry. <clears throat> 
you know, and I should talk less. That probably would help. <laughs> yep. Sorry. Um, in a show in which there's a lot of different things happening to the characters, you know, whether it's being affected by alien tech or being captured or that, how hard is it to figure out who you want to mess with next? And is it really hard when you've gone, gone to love a character to, to make horrible things happen? I think that that's, that's actually, it's a great question because that's actually the hardest thing in the world. You know, I'm a, I'm a nerd, almost everybody in our, my writer's room are nerds. We love sitting down and coming up with you know, alien stuff and whatever, but but finding out the characters and making their transition and transformation uh, real and 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 exciting is probably the hardest thing in the world. But I was, you know, Hal's a great character. He's 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 just a he's the Boy Scout of Boy Scouts and stuff. So he just seemed like a natural candidate to mess with, <laughs> which is you know which is what makes that. So much fun, and Drew Roy just does an amazing job of, you know, turning evil, as you can see in that last episode. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. So some of the stars and show producer and showrunner from Falling Skies, remember, returns this Sunday on TNT, 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock. Check your listings. Two-hour premiere. It's back. It's going to be a little bit different. I can I I can tell you guys. I've seen some uh, some sneak previews of the thing. It looks very action-packed. Um, they listened to us from from season one, where it was just too slow. And was, I know you have to develop characters, but you don't shouldn't do it that slow. So they picked up the action, and the action picks up even more in this one. So it returns this Sunday. Now let's take a little break. Mark, you ready to commentate on comics? I am. Okay, let's have, let's listen to him, see what he has to say about comic books this week. Let's do it. Comics Commentary with Mark Doris on the Geek Speak Show. All right, just jumping right into it here, starting with Marvel. The biggest release for the week that I'm really excited about is Kick-Ass 3, number one. I'm really stoked for this. Uh, Kick-Ass has been one of the more dominant comics in my life that I've been reading. Mark Miller has had a big impact uh, on me. I actually met him initially back, I want to say, maybe 2007-ish, I believe. And um, I met him at a comic convention in Chicago. Now, meeting uh, Mark Miller for me was great because he inspired me to do writing, which I do on the side. And uh, during the convention, I actually got to see the first footage for the Kick-Ass movie. So ever since then, I've just been a diehard Kick-Ass fan. I've read and I have every collection and all the uh, alternate covers for Kick-Ass 1, Kick-Ass 2, Hit Girl. So the final fourth piece in the collection of Kick-Ass number three will be hitting shelves on June 5th. Uh, typically, it'll it maybe could be a couple days after that, but I'm going to be heading down to my comic shop uh, here down a little bit just so I can take a look to see if I can get my hands on one. The other cool thing about it is that there's six total covers um, for issue one, all the all the ultimates. So there's six covers. What differentiates them, obviously, is going to be the, the difference in color and the difference in characters displayed on each cover, but if you have all six issues together, it will say, evil prevails when good men do nothing, justice forever. So I'm really excited about that. I'm probably going to go down there and uh, pick up all six copies myself. Um, in addition to Kick-Ass, we've got Red She-Hulk number 66, Thanos Rising number 3, X-Factor number 257, Wolverine Comic Reader 2013 number 1, puts together first class number 1 and material from World Wolverine and Power Pack number 1, 
Winter Soldier number 19, Ultimate Comics, Ultimates number 25. Waiting myself for uh, all new Spider-Man Ultimate uh, Ultimate Comics. The next issue I think is number 24. I think that comes out maybe next week or so. I've got the first uh, 23, 24-ish issues. I don't remember how many, but I'm really digging that series, so I'm, I'm waiting for that one myself next week. Uh, Thunderbolts number 10, Superior Spider-Man number 11, another one that I got to get caught up, up with, caught, uh, caught up with there. Scarlet Spider number 18, Iron Man number 11, Fearless Defenders number 5, Daredevil Dark Knights number 1, not the, the Dark Knight crossover that you would think, but uh, Dark Knights with an N rather than a K. Cable and X-Force number 9, Age of Ultron number 9. In addition to all the physical copies that you can get your hands on, the Marvel edited one uh, service that I'm really big on. Uh, basically, it's a digital subscription that you can either pay monthly or yearly for to get your hands on thousands of comics. They add new issues every single um, Monday. So be sure to check out this week's releases, starting with all new X-Men number two, Amazing Spider-Man number 699, Avengers number one, Avenging Spider-Man number 15, Daredevil End of Days number three, Deadpool number three, Hawkeye number five, Iron Man number three, Thunderbolts number one, Ultimate Comics Ultimate number 18.5. One and twenty, Uncanny Avengers number two, X Men Legacy number two, Extreme X Men number seven. With thousands of comics already ready for reading, expect to see new issues. Like I said, every Monday for the for their releases. Okay. In addition to Marvel, let's talk about DC for a bit. So this is going to be the week of the twenty ones. We're going to be looking at Action Comics number twenty one. Batwing 21, Detective Comics 21, Green Arrow 21, and dun -da -da -da, Green Lantern 21. Now this guy's for not a spoiler or anything like that, but in case you don't know, I'm just going to tell you now, this is the end of an era. Number 21 will be the first issue not written or having any impact by uh, Jeff Johns. He is leaving after nearly a decade of writing for the Green Lantern character. Now we're going to be seeing Robert Venditti team up with artist Billy Tan as they pick up where Johns left off in last week's number 20. Hal Jordan is now the head of the Green Lantern Corps, a fresh start with new challenges, threats, and allies for the Green Lantern series. Also adding to the weeks of New 52, the 21s here, we've got Stormwatch 21, Swamp Thing 21. Uh, we've got a graphic novel, Harley Quinn, Night and Day, featuring Harley Quinn issues 8 through 13, as well as Harley Quinn, Our Worlds at War, number 1, for $17. Superman, The Golden Age, Volume 1, where we see the first appearances of Lex Luthor and Lois Lane. Features issues 1 through 31 of Action Comics, New York's World's Fair, number 1, New York World's Fair, 1940, and Superman, number 1 through 7. So you're getting a, a pretty big collection of comics there, looking at on the more expensive side of $75, but if you're like me, if you're a Superman fan, this is right up your alley. We've also got graphic novel Solo Deluxe Edition, a collection of 12 issues of the acclaimed series Hit Shells for 50 Big Smackaroos this week, featuring stories with Batman, Superman, Robin, T-Titans, etc. You can't go wrong for 50 bucks on this guy. Crisis on Multiple Earths, Volume 6, featuring Justice League of America 195 through 197 and 207 to 209, in addition to All-Star Squadron 14 through 15 for about 20 bucks. Batman and Robin, Volume 1, Born to Kill, it's the first eight issues. Bruce and Damian Wayne featuring those two in their new 52 for number 17, or, sorry, $17 rather. Batman and Robin Volume 2 Pearl issues 9 through 14 for $22. Dial H number 13, Legend of the Dark Knight number 9, Earth 2 number 13, Amikami Girls number 4, The Movement number 2. 
DC has released another trailer for the upcoming Flashpoint Paradox based on the comics miniseries that of course was the catalyst for the new 52, which we are 21 issues in. Uh, be sure to look for it July 30th from Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment. I'm really stoked to get my hands on the Blu-ray copy. Jim Lee, co-publisher of DC Entertainment, and Ed Boon, the creative director of NetherRealm Studios, have announced Scorpion as a downloadable character for Injustice Gods Among Us, that popular fighting game featuring all of our DC heroes. The Injustice Gods Among Us does have a comic side spin-off, a prequel as it were, um, that fits into the video game. So I'm in we'll be interested to see whether Scorpion or any other Mortal Kombat characters will be introduced into the comics. But for now, it seems like we might just be getting a, a little fun character add-on as a homage to the DC versus Mortal Kombat video game that we saw last year. Keep in mind the prices for all the comics we want will vary depending on a store near you. That's it for this week's guys. Be sure we talk about next week to follow up to all these issues. And uh, yeah, have a great day. Are you ready? Here's Geek Speak Show Quickie. So while we're waiting for that super movie from DC Comics and Legendary Pictures later this month, I think you know which it is. There's another little movie coming out this weekend, June 7th, called The Purge. stars Ethan, Ethan Hawke and Lena Headey. It's produced by Jason Bloom. It's a little bit of everything. Um, you don't really know how to describe it. It's got a little bit of thriller elements in it, sci-fi elements in it, some political thriller elements in it, and a little bit of horror even. Um, so it's a, it's a mashup of all of those. It looks like a pretty good film. looks like a pretty scary film. Uh, again, it's called The Purge, starring Ethan Hawke, Lena Headey, brought to you by Universal and Bloomhouse Productions. Bloomhouse Productions was kind enough to send me some interviews with number one producer Jason Bloom. So here's Jason talking about The Purge. Great, thank you. So thanks for taking the time today. My pleasure. So if we could just start off, you know, what initially drew you to this project? Um, so our company only does lower budget, high concept movies. That's that's all. That's all. That's all that we do. And very rarely does one check every box, but this one did. It was. It's a huge concept. What if crime were legal 12 hours a year, once a year, uh, but told through the point of view of one family's experience through this night so that it's relatively contained so that it can be done uh, without a huge number of effects and a huge number of locations. So as soon as James pitched it, I was like, I love it. We're in. And he, he worked on the script and uh, and we the, the process, once we got the script, was actually pretty quick from the time we made the script, time we got the script to the time we made the movie. So it is a thriller, has some social commentary, Horror obviously. Horror movie yeah. with thriller elements. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> but was the intent to always sort of have this political statement attached as well? Uh, that was not my intent, and that was not. I think. I think. I think James's intent was to tell to tell have a great horror movie concept. And in addition, there was a, a, a social commentary that came along with it. And when I first read it, it was very clear that that was there. And I was really, I was really psyched about that. But it's not like we went and said, let's make a movie with a social commentary. Like it was, it was a happy accident mm -hmm. uh, that happened. Um, but, but, but completely intentional. Like it didn't, it didn't surprise us once the movie was made. So if you could set up The Purge for me and, and what it is. So The Purge is a movie that takes place in, the, in, in America. And it's about seven years into a law that is that has uh, that makes all crime legal from seven at night till seven in the morning once a year. And so this has happened about seven 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 years in a row. So people are accustomed to it when the movie opens. And it's about mom and dad, Ethan and Lena, and two kids. And it starts a little bit before seven o'clock on the seventh year of the purge or thereabouts. It's not exactly. It doesn't exactly say in the movie. And um, dad sells alarm systems because most people during the purge close themselves into their houses and wall themselves off so that they don't go out into the mayhem that's in the streets. And this night starts the same way the six others before have with the the, the um, 
iron doors go up and the family's locked into the house. And about uh, 20 minutes into the movie, a guy is being terrorized and a little boy lets him into the house. And it's about what transpires between the guy, the people chasing that guy, and this family stuck in this house for 11 hours. <laughs> so now talk to me then about getting Ethan involved in the project and then you know his characters are what we see him go through throughout this night. Uh, Ethan and I have been great friends for over 20 years. We produced theater in New York together. We had a company called Malapart. We did a movie, uh, a movie version of Hamlet together in 2000. And then, and then ever since I've been doing these, these scary movies, I've been trying to talk him into doing one. And finally, he agreed to do Sinister which was a great triumph for me, and we had a really fun time, a great collaborative partnership on the movie. And uh, in fact, he liked it so much at the end of the movie, he said, let's do another one. So I gave him the script to The Purge. He actually knew James separate from me. We both knew James independent of one another. And uh, he said yes, and six months later, we shot The Purge in L.A. And, uh, and, uh, and that's how he, that's how he, that's how he, uh, that's how, we, that's how it came to me in the movie. And um, his arc in the movie starts out as a real, you know, a real believer in the purge. Obviously, his whole entire business is based on the purge. And so he's made a, a small fortune off the, off the law. And, um, and he's a big believer in it. And through the course of the movie, um, I would say it's safe to say he becomes less of a believer in the purge. So then talk to me too about the, about the family though. We obviously see Lena go through, you know, she sort of becomes like the hero of the film. Yeah. Talk to me about her character and, you know, where, where we see her. Uh, so Lena, um, Lena, like her husband, you know, has done very well by this, by this, by this, by this event, although she's questioned it a little bit more. The people who question it the most in the beginning of the movie are the kids. The kids are the kind of the ones with the, the most moral center in the beginning of the movie, maybe then Lena and then Ethan. And, um, and, but she's kind of ridden along with her husband and with her husband's belief in this, and, and it's, it's supported their family for a long time. But she sees more problems with the purge than her husband does, and those problems become apparent very quickly um, in this particular night that we choose to tell this story. And, um, and in fact, uh, she does become the hero of the movie, and she, she, saves, uh, she saves her family from, from dying, really. Um, and uh, she too, by the end of the movie, though, not a big believer in uh, in, in having a purge again. Right. And now I know you guys really like to work with accelerated schedules. You shot it fairly quickly. Do you think that helps though with the pacing of the film too, shooting on such a such a short schedule? Yes. Well, we start we start off with the fact that we 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 don't start shooting unless our scripts are very short. So that helps to keep the movies. I never I rarely feel leaving a movie. I wish it were longer. I often feel I wish it were shorter. So um, so limited resources force us to focus on what shooting stuff that's going to wind up in the movie. Not everything we shoot winds up in the movie, but our percentage of what winds up in the movie versus not on these movies is way higher than a, than a normal movie. Um, and, uh, and I think to a certain degree, the fact that we're, we're covering a lot of ground every day gives a certain momentum to the, to the movie. Um, and if we have the right DP, and we had a terrific DP on this movie, a guy named uh, Jacques, a French, French DP who was great, um, and fast, and if we have the DP on board with our plan, again, we don't always, but but a lot of the times we do. I think it does. I think it helps performance. The actors don't go to their trailers and come back. There aren't these huge two-hour breaks for lighting setups. Like we, we ideally we do one lighting setup and shoot from all shoot the scene again and again and again from all different angles without breaking. I think it makes performance better. I think I think it does. I think it does help actually.
So then obviously clearly then the one location, that house, I mean, where everything really takes place. Yeah. You know, how important was it and how hard was it to find that location? It was really hard. There was another house that everyone wanted us to shoot in. Not the director. James didn't want it, but our but our, our, uh, our line producer did because it was less expensive. And um, and we, we saw this house and I just, we, we reached for it and we kind of... It was a long negotiation to get the house, but I was really glad we did because the house really is a character in the movie, and I think the house fits the movie really well. Um, and I was really pleased with it, but it was the, probably the biggest struggle we had in the movie was was landing on the on the right location. And now James wrote it and directed. Was that always the intent to have him do both, or did it kind of just sort of happen? And he wrote and directed the movie. We n almost never work with second time direct. We never work the first time. We almost never work with second time directors. Most of the directors we work with have had a lot more experience, like Scott Derrickson or James Wan. And um, one of the reasons we had another producing partner on, we had Platinum Dunes on the movie, was because, uh, was because James hadn't had a lot of experience directing and especially had never directed a horror movie. And those guys have, have made a lot of great ones. And so they were very involved creatively in the movie. And that was, um, that was kind of part of the creative unit was, was James and, uh, and Brad and Drew. Good. Great. Thanks. That's producer Jason Bloom. Here's the star, Ethan Hawke. He plays James Sandin. He's the star of The Purge along with Lena Headey. Here he is talking about The Purge. All right, thanks. So thanks for taking the time today. So, uh, you know, so what initially enticed you to take on this project? You know, it's a thriller, yet it has social commentary, sort of like a it's making a political statement, so to speak. Just the originality of the concept. Uh, I had worked with James DeMonaco and I had worked together on a remake of a John Carpenter film, Assault on Precinct 13, and we loved making that movie. And when I was doing Sinister with Jason, was, we were talking about James and what a great underrated filmmaker he is, and, and Jason was, got really excited about this script and gave it to me. So the combination of those two guys, Jason and James, sending me this, and it felt like an old school genre movie that I grew up on watching, you know, whether it's Escape from New York or I don't know what, but it's A, accomplishes the first goal of a genre movie, which is to be tremendous fun. I mean, it's just entertaining as hell. And then it does the second goal, which is to have something for you to think about after it's over. Um, and the best, the worst ones are like candy. You eat them and then they're gone. And, um, well, I guess the worst ones aren't even like candy. They just taste bad and you spit them out. But the, the, then the next one is they're, you know, they're kind of sweet and delicious, but then you forget about them. And the best ones uh, are incredibly fun and leave you something to talk with your friends about after they're over. Okay. Now, so if you could set up The Purge for me and exactly what it is. Well, it's a movie that's set in the future when, you know, America has recovered from the Great Depression of 2020 or whatever it is. And there's a new government in place that has decided to shut down once a year to allow people to uh, purge themselves of all the hatred and bile that collects during the year. Uh, and so they unload the jails and they don't have to, you know, you don't have to worry about if somebody cheats you in a land deal. You just wait till purge night and you kill the guy. And so the courts aren't full with unnecessary lawsuits and uh, the unemployment goes down because all the poor people kill each other. And um, it's kind of a radical, ridiculous idea, but it provokes a lot of thought about ways that it's not so far-fetched. Right. So now, when you initially you know, signed on to do this, though, was it, it's a little bit different, though, than some of your other roles, right? So what was that? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, I started acting when I was 13. 
So I've been trying to play around in all different kinds of genres of making movies. I'm not that good of an actor that I can just kind of shape change myself into these different people. But I can try to find good scripts that put me in different worlds, you know. And so that helps me be a, a better actor and helps me stay curious and excited about making movies. This is an old-fashioned movie in a way that, like, you, I think Scorsese called it smuggler cinema, you know, when it's, uh, I mean, it's it's a studio film, it's, it's a Friday night popcorn movie, but at the same time, it actually is radically fun and has something radical to say. And so talk to me then about the art, your character's arc. You know, what is his take on The Purge? And, you know, where do we see him kind of go throughout this film? Well, he's a person who's making money off The Purge, you know, and like a lot of people who make money off something choose not to see the downside of it. It's like a cigarette salesman or a guy who sells whiskey or something. He doesn't want to hear about drunk driving stats, you know. This is a guy who builds home security systems. So the more, the higher the threat of violence is, the more useful his product is. Uh, so he's a guy that at first is, uh, doesn't see himself as part of the problem at all. And through the course of the movie, this violence that seems so far away starts coming in. And he starts to realize that he's been a participant in something very, very dark. Now, you guys shot the film fairly quickly. Um, did the accelerated schedule kind of help, though, with the intensity of this? Or? I love that. You know, one thing that... Uh, there's something fun about having... Uh, disciplined budget, let's put it, you know, that forces you to be more creative and have more fun. I mean, you got to, as opposed to, if you're doing a big movie and the shooting day goes wrong, it's okay, we can pick it up tomorrow. But on an independent movie, nothing can go wrong or the movie won't be good. So the it's kind of like a razor's edge and it's a lot more fun. And things do go wrong, obviously, and they're not as good as you wanted them to be. But it's accumulation of did you win more battles than you lost? And talk to me about working with Lena and, and um, Max and Adelaide as well and just, you know, the dynamic with everyone and their characters. Well, for me, the best part of this movie is Lena, Lena's performance and her character. I felt that when I read the script that it was a real opportunity for Lena to do something special, and she did it. Um, her, she's kind of the hero of the movie, uh, kind of housewife as lioness. Um, and she's, she's the heart of the movie to me. My character is kind of a, a guy who finds his uh, sense of self a little too late. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say then, too, though, that we see Max as sort of like the moral compass of the story? Yeah, it's hard for me to say he's a moral compass because I play the father, and a lot of what he does is exasperating to me. I want to, you know. Uh, but he is, the you know... Certainly. He's the one who's looking at it from an ethical point of view. I mean, at first, Lena's character is just sedating herself, trying to ignore it. Uh, but he's the one who's looking at it for what it is. So what do you hope the audience takes from this? I mean, like we, you know, I was saying earlier, was the intent, you think, to always have sort of the, that social commentary or a political statement? Or <clears throat> I think the intent of any good genre movie is first off to be entertaining. I mean, you know, to be fun. And once you've done that, then you can think about the second thing, which is what do you have to say? Uh, and the best genre movies lace those through. And this one certainly, for me, it's impossible to watch this movie and not start thinking about all the ways in which it's not so far-fetched. A lot of ways that we've seen a lot of the stuff on the news. 
And it's, it gives you a way to think about the ethics of our position on violence, our position on race, our position on economics, without, um, you know, some talking head having a, you know, trying to teach you or having an agenda about who you should vote for. It really just presents these radical ideas, and you can think about what ways the characters are good and bad. It's time for the Geek Speak Show Book Club. Our books or graphic novels. Tell us what your favorites are. Books at thegeekspeakshow.com. I've gotten a few from you guys. I will uh, talk about them in a later show because I just have a whole bunch of them. But now we haven't done this in a while. You know, part of the, part of the book club, we we yeah, we talk about the books that that we're all reading here. But part of the book club, the, the fun part is I, sometimes I get to talk to some of the writers of, of these really, really cool books. We haven't done it in a while. I know. I think the last one we had was Lev Grossman um, when, when he came by. Uh, but now, you know, it's summer. We're all out, including writers. They're taking a break, sort of, from writing. So everybody's available, maybe. We're doing it again. We've got an author. I just read a book called The Last Academy. Um, now, this is one, you know, usually the book club, I tell you guys why you should read it. This one... I want to tell you, but but if I do, I give the whole thing away. So on to talk about this is the writer of The Last Academy, Ann Applegate. Ann, and welcome to the Geek Speak Show. Thanks, Henry. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thank, thanks for coming here. So, so again, like I said, just I read it twice, actually, uh, uh, The Last Academy. Really love it. And I, I want to gush about it and tell everybody that it's such a great book because, but I have to stop there. Uh, so I'm going to let you tell everybody what it's about, but without spoiling the whole story. Okay, without spoilers, this is a story about a girl, Camden. She's 14 years old, and after falling out with her best friend back home, she heads off for boarding school in California. And the Lethe Academy seems cool on the surface, but soon she starts to realize that something spooky is going on. Yeah, that, that, that's perfect right there. See, and if that doesn't entice you, you know, I, like I said, I could say a few more things, but then I'd be giving away too many things. Uh, so I'm going to stop right there. Uh, so wh- where, where did the story come from? Where did, you, where did you get the idea from? Well, when I was 14, I headed off to boarding school in California. And on one of my trips, I met the inspiration for Barnaby Karen. And uh, what happened was, I think it was my sophomore year, I was taking a flight and it, uh, from home to California. And it was just me and a handful of businessmen. And this guy came and sat down next to me, and he started asking all these common traveler-type questions. But there was something really odd in the way he spoke. It was almost hypnotic. And at one point, he reached out, and he put his hand on the base of my throat, and he said, you should get off with Den- in Denver with me. And I was just, you know, kind of young and naive, and I just turned to him and said, you know, I'm 15 years old. And he said, that's okay. I'm married. Whoa. And part of, yeah, and part of me was just terrified. But there was part of me that wanted to go with him. Just my life had been so strange up to that point. I thought maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and this alarm went off my head and, in my head and said, you, "You idiot! He's probably a serial killer." <laughs> and <laughs> so I did like Camden. I just got out of there. But his memory has just stuck with me all this time. And as I get older, it seems more spooky to me, I think, than it did when it happened. Yeah, I mean, when you when you when readers first get to that, it's, it's early. It happens early in the story. You know, it, it does read like like a like that, like a really spooky, creepy thing. And then later on, when it's actually revealed what it was, you're like, oh. But you know, I thought, I've, like I said, I've talked to a lot of authors here on the show, 
And you know, we, I always ask them where you get the story, what inspired the story, and, and most of it comes like like most every everything in entertainment, it comes from personal experiences. Yeah. Honestly, when I was reading it, I thought, or I should say, I hoped that that wasn't that you experienced yourself, but apparently, it is. It was, but I I was lucky. I got out of there quick. Yeah, so. uh, it's a, you know again without too many spoilers. But did the story what it, what it is? Did it start out as, as as what it is now, or was it something else entirely when you first started coming up with the story? It was a little longer the first time through, but it was basically the same as it is now. Okay, so. So, now, for this section here, I got to give you guys a little warning. Spoiler alert! <laughs> so, this section is for the people who have read The Last Academy. Everybody else, you know, you might want to skip over this part because it, it'll ruin everything for you. So, for those of you who have read and enjoyed The Last Academy, I know that's a lot of you, uh, let, let's get into specific details. So, um, gave you plenty of warning. You know, don't send me the emails and say you ruined the story for me because I gave you plenty of warning. So, it, it, the story it deals with a topic that we all think about at some point in our lives. That's death. And so, so does the, does the story again going back to you know it touches on uh, from our personal experiences? Does it reflect how you see death or the afterlife? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, when I was younger, I used to think heaven was probably just you know sitting on a cloud watching your loved ones from afar. Like, you know, almost like a soap opera, that that's what it would be like to die. And then my grandfather died. And my grandmother was this strong, independent, unflappable lady. Like, I never my whole life saw her out of control. But at his funeral, she just really calmly tried to get into his coffin with him. And I think just because she was so broken from losing him. And I knew that if my grandfather could see that, it wouldn't be heaven at all for him. It would be hell. And so I had to rethink my you know what might happen after people die yeah you know i, I mean that without getting too personal either i mean i recently experienced the same thing myself not climbing into somebody's coffin but i experienced the loss myself and yeah you, it, i mean especially now that i'm a little older because i lost my dad when i was 13 years old and, and you know i knew it was happening but at the same time i still kind of didn't um but this time around you know, being a little bit more older, having a little bit more life experience, it it does make you you know sit back and rethink. You know, what what, what could be waiting for us? I mean, and, and you also start thinking, you know, the kind of life that they lived. You know, they 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 were always there for us. They they did everything for us. You can you, you almost hope actually. You hope there is something afterwards. I mean, you, all of this that we do here can't all be for nothing at the end. I'm so sorry for your loss. But, yeah, thanks. But I agree with you. I think there's got to be something else, right? Yeah, and, and also, you know, you know, we talked about it a little bit before we started the interview. The uh, the Last Academy, it it has a lot of a um, lot of characters and motifs from from Greek mythology, and, and those of you who who are familiar with it, you'll see them right away. Well, maybe because you know, like like I was telling like I was telling you, Anne, right before we started, I mm-hmm. I, I know it, and I didn't even catch it because I was so into the story. Um, but why why did you use that specifically? Why Greek mythology? I don't know. It just happened that way. <laughs> it just was something cool to put in there, and it, and it worked. Too. And it because it does work for the story. I'm glad. Yeah, just dumb luck, I suppose. Yeah, and 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 one one last spoiler question. We we kind of talked about it right now. That that because it actually happened to you. What would have happened if Camden had gone off the plane in Denver? I think. Uh I think Karen was asking Camden if she was ready to face those hard things that would come. And I like the idea that the universe gives you 
only what you can handle and that there's kind of built-in escape hatches if you're not ready to face what's coming. Uh, he does that at the end of the story, too, where Camden has to choose to cross. And uh, if you notice, there's no boat at the end of the story, and I think that's because to get wherever she's going, she's going to have to get in the water and swim. Huh. I didn't even think of that either. But what I was thinking of, and you tell me if I'm off or not, is back to the the scene on the plane. After I, you know, after we got to the end, and I realized what had been happening the whole time. I thought, you know, afterwards, if she had gotten off the plane, does that would that mean she would have been living the rest of her life as a ghost? I don't know. I think that it would have. I think eventually she would have had to go to the boarding school and uh, and pass through that level. But I think if she wasn't ready to face all those things that happened to her, yeah, that maybe there was something easier, more peaceful she could do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, you know, that that's that section there was for all of you who have read and loved The Last Academy. So let's go back to non spoiler stuff now. Um now, I know you know it's probably kept you busy in the promotions and everything that you do for the Last Academy, but have you given any thought to what your next book will be? Yeah, I'm working on a story about a girl who helps caretake this abandoned mansion on the central coast of California. And the place is kind of a cross between Hearst Castle and Neverland Ranch. And, of course, people mysteriously disappear. Hmm. I like it already. Uh, as, as what writers do you enjoy reading in your spare time? I am all over the place. I, Cormac McCarthy and Charlene Harris share equal spell, shelf space in my house. But <laughs> mostly I'm a sucker for good descriptions and plot twists. Yeah, we're, we're talking to Ann Applegate. She's the writer of The Last Academy. It's out in stores now. You guys can get it. You know, the usual suspects, Amazon and everything else. I do have a link up on our link section. You guys can go there, find out about Ann, about the book, and order it if you haven't read it. And I hope you skipped over that last part because we just spoiled it for you, the whole thing. Because this, this is a book that you have to go in there knowing as little as possible about um, or it won't have the same effect. Trust me on that one. Uh, as we do have a lot. In fact, we have some people on staff, in fact, who do want to write professionally. If somebody's, somebody's listening now and they're wondering, how do I get started? What, what kind of advice would you give them? I say you should absolutely go for it. I think the hardest thing to, about getting started is taking that first step. And but really, what do you have to lose, right? You know, a couple hours sleep, maybe some bad TV. You know, you just have to go for it and give it that extra time and energy. Yeah, it kind of ties into the theme of Last Academy. You only live once, so you really have to lose. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and again, like I said, I have a link up on on the, uh, the on uh, our website on, on the in the guest link section. But you know, give us your website, uh, any appearances, anything you have coming up. Where can people see and meet you? Uh, sure, my website is annapplegate dot com, and uh, if you there's a page you can't get to by links. It's annapplegate dot com slash secret and so if you're interested in finding more stuff than the average bear it's on that page okay and uh, have you done any art any signings or anything for the book no i haven't done anything yet i'm kind of hidey holing away okay i'm not sure that'll come because the the book just came out in last month wasn't it yeah yeah it's, yeah. A, it's pretty new and, and i I I have gotten some emails from from some of our listeners who who have read it and and and, and I got a, a review copy so I, I knew about it but it is starting to make some noise and you know you being on here I'm sure people are gonna pick it up and start reading it some more so get ready to go out there and meet and greet some of your fans. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, and again, you know, I said it before we started. It it, it is a great story, uh, without giving too much. It it does have a big twist in the end. And, and if you're like me and you, you're into this kind of stuff, which is you know why we do the Geek Speak show. If you're like me and you you don't see the, the the twist coming at the end, it's really going to hit you at the end when it's when it's there. And 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 it is one of those books that will when you're done, you'll want to go back and reread it again with for those oh I see it now moments because there's plenty of those in the book. Man, I'm grinning from ear to ear, Henry. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so it's a great job, and, and and you're welcome back anytime to talk about any of your future books. Thank you. Okay, so thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay, so thanks again to Anne Applegate. She is the writer of The Last Academy, a good book. And again, can't give too much away because this is a book that you need to go in there knowing as little as possible as you can. Kind of like Into Darkness, but we all knew it was calm. But we're not even going to go there again. We're over it. Ready for Man of Steel. Mark, what book do you have? Because I like him. He actually reads books. What do you have? I do. So actually this week I've got World War Z, which you guys all know about the movie coming out on June 21st. Uh, World War Z is a little bit different in the book side of things. Um, I mean, well, general that, that's the understatement of the year, a little bit different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like all films and books, there, there's just such a gigantic difference, which is why I wanted to read the book first before the movie came out. But it was it was really entertaining. I mean, zombies, some people think it's been overdone. I have been obsessed with zombies for years before they became popular, and I'm going to love them after they're popular. But, um, yeah, it's just a, a great feel for what you're going to miss in the movie. The movie's got some early screenings, going to be good. But essentially, bottom line is zombie outbreak. The world kind of decides, like, how are we going to handle it? The world war part is not so much a world war with zombies that you might think, but it's really a war with each other while zombies take place. So for me, I love the works of Mac, Max Brooks. I love his zombie survival guide. I love all the little pieces that he does. So it was a no-brainer to get this book and to read it. So you guys should check it out before the movie hits June 21st. It's a it's a good read. It's a, it's good stuff. I like a lot. Well, I would say yes and no. Um, you know, again, he was up on our uh, our Facebook page. I actually got the I never I didn't interview him because I just saw him walking to walking around at WonderCon. Uh, the last time, the last time I was here in San Francisco, and I got to meet him, and I told him exactly what you said. You know, I loved the the the, the books, both of them, World War Z and and How to Survive. Yeah. Um, and and he said at the time, you know, it, it, yeah, they're, they're cool because we talked about the movie. It was still in production. And I said, you you know what's happening with the movie? And he said, um, you know, honestly, I kind of took myself out of it because it's nothing like the book, not even close. Yeah. And you hit it right on when you, when you said, you know, it, it, even though it's called World War Z, it's not really a world war against the zombies. But this movie makes it into that because, you know, I've I, you know, I read the book also, Mark, like you, and, and I love the I love the way it is. I would I would see it more if you agree. I would see it more if they did this kind of like a like a found footage kind of thing. They, I was reading something interesting about that online, actually, and they said that what they're hoping to do with the World War Z film is to turn it into a trilogy, like. I, and I thought that was kind of an interesting concept. I don't know how they're how they're going to do it because I think like the way that you said that they're going to do it, they could probably get it done in one film. But they're the writers and, and the director, I think himself, said that they're planning on a, a trilogy. And they used, I think, uh, the Jason Bourne films is kind right. of like their foundation for that. And I was like, that was a an intriguing comparison. But you know, all the same. I, I, I want to see the movie. IGN gave it, I think, 7.6 out of 10, which is a lot better than I thought it was going to do. I thought it was going to just tank. But the only disappointment I think we're going to have is the fact that it's so different from the book. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I myself, all of you, everybody out there is right, just like you. We love anything that says zombies or has anything zombies. Right. 
Um, and, I, and, and was that were you trying to be funny there when you said you know you're gonna love zombies till you die or till the date whatever you said there? Well, okay. The reason I said that is because I, I every single time I bring up something regarding zombies, like with my buddies or or, or you know my other job that I that I have on the side, everyone's always like, oh yeah, zombies are just popular right now because you know movies, movies, Hollywood. And I was like, well, and zombies. He's and, and walking the, dead. <laughs> right, right. But my my friends and I, we've always been into zombies. Every time we're in any like mall or like a hotel or something like that we always joke with each other like okay what's our escape plan where are we going to go what do we do if zombies hit <laughs> right now you know we do that and and so when people give me a hard time about saying it's just a hollywood thing and it's like it's not there's such a massive subculture of of undead lovers and you know zombie enthusiasts and survivalists you know that um i just when when hollywood gives up on all things undead, I'm not gonna love it any less. I will still find my avenues of, you know, zombie outbreaks and gore galore. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna love it no matter what. Yeah, you know, I'm laughing because you know Mark is a Rachel find and, and a great find, and I can see why you guys are friends. Not on, we've done it, I think, a couple of times on the show, but off the air, like when we were at WonderCon. Uh, you know, this, these are the conversations we have over pizza or whenever we're just hanging out. Right. Rachel and I, we, we come up with, you know, what's my plan for not not if, when the apocalypse comes, when the zombies oh, yeah. rise. We, and like you said, we'll have, you'll be laughing. We will have the last laugh because then you know, when, when we're fine, when we become Rick Crimes, you guys will be like, I should have listened to Mark. I should listen to Rachel and Henry. Now, now look who's right. So, again... Get both of the books, not just World War Z. Get the first one before that, How to Survive the Zombie Apocalypse, both from Max Brooks, really cool guy, really really good books too. So those are our picks for the book club this week. Yours, don't forget, books at thegeekspeakshow.com. In case you can't remember it here. That's the Geek Speak Show book club. Tell us what your favorite books or graphic novels are. Books at thegeekspeakshow.com. All right, so that's the show again. You know, short, shorter one. Um, finally, not that I don't like you, Mark, but finally we're gonna have Rachel back next week, and I think no promises. We're trying to work it out, you know, schedule wise. I think I'm gonna have Drea Letamendi back again, not to beat up on me some more with their knowledge of Star Wars, but well, first I'm gonna give them that they're they're gonna officially accept their congratulations on cheating. I mean, winning the uh, Star Wars versus Star Trek show that we did. Um, and the, uh, on a serious note, um, after Earth came out last week and I went to see it, and the fake geek girl is something that we've sort of covered lightly on the show here, um, especially when Rachel and Ariel and everybody, all the other, the real geek girls came on board. And, you know, the, 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 we're always going to have this quote unquote argument. You're a fake geek girl. You're, you're not the real thing. You, um, I heard it again after earth it was a i'll tell this uh, tell the story next week or when we do that show but i'll real quick you know there was a couple of girls sitting a few seats from from where we were and i heard some guys behind him say oh you're just here because you like the fresh prince you know this doesn't have a cool fresh prince song to go with this movie and you know actually they were there because and i, I you know i introduced myself and spoke to them for a little bit because they didn't they didn't know those guys from any from a hole in the wall um i told they actually were sci-fi fans they were there not for fresh prince they were there because believe it or not they were actually were keyword m night Shyamalan fans and they wanted to see if he's going to return to form with after earth yes. and they're still waiting i guess but that's why they were there 
And, you know, but but it got me thinking about Drea and because she, she had this on her um, under under the under the mask website. She has a whole article about the fake geek girl argument. And, and so we're going to have her come on and we'll talk about that. And I'm also going to invite a, some few real geek girls who I know from from uh, talking to them. They've had that. Oh, you're just a fake geek or you just do it because you just want pe- people to take your picture kind of arguments. So that's what we'll do. Um, we're going to try for next week. If not, you know, I have some other things planned. There is a little movie coming from uh, Legendary and DC Comics, I think. Mark, you heard something about that? Uh, no, I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah, I mean, if 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 they if if we could have a really really action packed movie, summer movie from DC Comics, that would be super, wouldn't it? <laughs> but you know, we'll settle for whatever we get for it. But till then, like we always say, come on back next week. We'll speak more geek.